Welcome to Making Peace Visible, the podcast about how the media covers peace and conflict. I'm your host, Jamil Simon. In a recent episode, I interviewed Maria Stefan, a political scientist who has studied hundreds of political movements around the world, many of them against autocratic regimes. According to her research, nonviolent protest movements are twice as effective at achieving their goals compared to movements that employ violent tactics. If that comes as a surprise to you, you're not alone. In the news media, we might not hear much about a protest movement in the U.S. or in another country unless it, quote, turns violent, or when, quote, violence breaks out. By the way, those are two phrases that drive today's guests nuts. Hardy Merriman is the director of the International Center for Nonviolent Conflict, an organization that has played a catalytic role in supporting protest movements in the U.S. and internationally. Hardy says he's encouraged by improvement in the way journalists cover civil resistance movements over the past 20 years. But he's also deeply worried about the rise and strengthening of autocracy around the world. Through technology and other means, authoritarians are cracking down on activists in ways that are hard to see and difficult for journalists to report on. Governments are also influencing media narratives in ways journalists might not even be aware of. Whether you're a journalist covering a political movement, an activist seeking media coverage for your movement, or you just want to be a smarter news consumer, I think this interview will be eye-opening for you. I know it was for me. I started out by asking Hardy to explain what his organization, the ICNC, does. Broadly speaking, we, we focus on what we call civil resistance movements. These are movements using tactics like strikes, boycotts, protests, civil disobedience, and many other acts of non-cooperation to achieve rights, freedom, and justice. And we take a social science approach to trying to understand those movements, trying to figure out why some movements succeed, why others fail, and how movements can become more effective. And then, broadly speaking, our, our mission is educational. We try to build educational infrastructure to support activists, um, to support their skill acquisition, to support their strategic planning, to support their training. Um, so that's, over the years, um, this has taken the form of supporting research on topics that are relevant to practice and, and activists and their allies. We've also organized all kinds of educational events online, in person, internationally, domestically. And then we've also supported the development of a lot of educational materials. We have downloadable materials or viewable materials on our website in 73 different languages and dialects spoken around the world. Well, our goal today is to explore ways that journalists can do a better job of covering nonviolent protest movements. The stories behind uh, these movements, they're complex. Do you think journalists are doing a good job in covering them? Yeah. On any given day, you can find examples of stories that you think are done well or not well. In the time I've been in the field, the overall quality of media coverage and quantity of media coverage of movements, I think, has increased. Uh, so this is good. Yeah, that's good. This news. is good. I mean, it's not surprising because there are also, um, by some measures, more movements now than before. Um, as we are in an autocratic wave and as institutions fail in various countries around the world, people conclude that they're not going to be able to get the changes that they need through just relying on institutions. So that's part of why they move towards nonviolent, non-institutional, what we call repertoires, like protests, tech, you know, boycotts, strikes. 
And so it's not surprising that we're seeing more movements. I think journalists have a tough job. I don't think journalists um, necessarily get trained on how to do sort of a more movement-centered coverage. And I think also movements sometimes can improve their skills at working with journalists and understanding what a journalist needs um, in order to get the story and also, you know, make sure that it can get by their editor and actually get out there in the world. So there's a lot of different factors, but I mean, I mean, there's still some areas where I think journalists can do better. So I'll focus on one. I, I can't count how many times in stories I've read that a journalist says violence broke out or there were violent protests. And without elaborating the sequence of what happened, without elaborating on whether the violence was one-sided or two-sided, without elaborating on who initiated without the violence, without elaborating on whether it was in fact just property destruction or property destruction and violence, whether in fact it was the majority of participants at uh, public action or whether it was a minority or maybe just a single individual. When journalists fall back on the term violent protests, it obscures a lot of that information unless they do significantly more elaboration. And that elaboration is critical. It's really important because one-sided violence against a movement, for example, we actually know that there's a, there's a fair chance that that violence may backfire against the perpetrators. And that actually, you know, contrary to certain beliefs, violence against a movement doesn't doom a nonviolent movement to fail. In fact, sometimes it's just the opposite. Um, but if it's two-sided violence, if the nonviolent movement loses nonviolent discipline, um, by significant numbers, that actually decreases that movement success rate considerably. Right, because people don't want to join. Right. So getting the attribution question right, it's actually critical to figuring out where the story is going. Here's another example. Like, what if there is a predominantly nonviolent movement with a code of conduct that they're going to be nonviolent and, uh, you, know, you know, public speeches about remaining nonviolent, and then some individuals who aren't really affiliated with the movement show up and start engaging in violence against the police or start engaging in, you know, significant public acts of property destruction? Well, you know, you talked about the good news a little while ago, the, that, that independent media has been shown to be helpful to movements, that the overall coverage of civil resistance has improved. But there's also some bad news, and that's the, that autocrats are getting better at making their repression less visible, you know, harder to detect. Can you talk about some of the tools that, like, for example, in China, uh, an activist can be not able to board a train or go to work. I mean, there's no picture of a crackdown, but... Sure, yeah. I mean, look, media coverage is powerful. We know it. We know that, for example, independent media and support for independent media in a particular country increases the chance that a movement in that country might get defections uh, from their opponent. Like, for example, security forces that are ordered to crack down may be less likely to crack down if there's independent media. We also know that when there's international coverage of a movement, and particularly of repression of that movement, it becomes more likely that that repression will backfire internationally. And particularly one of the strongest ways that can backfire is when allies of a particular government that's doing repression start to pull away. They start to withdraw support. No one understands that better than authoritarian governments. They know their vulnerabilities very well. And so as a, because they're vulnerable to bad media attention, even though they pretend they're not, they have learned to engage in what is sort of an academic circle called smart repression. These are forms of repression that are quite powerful, but largely hidden. They don't lend themselves to uh, imagery or video 
um, that is likely that that is you know that is more likely to create sort of a backlash against them. So, for example, they will pass a whole lot of civil you know laws against civil society, trying to stop organizations from even functioning. Uh, but it's there's no easy way to take a picture of that law and its impact. Or, for example, they will not do public crackdowns against protesters where there might be cameras, but rather they will try to identify the protesters and then arrest them one by one over the ensuing days um, when there's no cameras around. These are just a couple examples. I mean, there's a broader sort of branch of this called digital authoritarianism, where the Chinese government in particular is seen as one of the most advanced practitioners of this, where, I mean, they can use facial recognition to figure out who protesters are. So it's really easy for them to later come back and arrest them when they're not in public view. Or they have an app, which they call the sort of the social credit system that monitors what you do and your posts and opinions and actions and who knows what else. I don't know everything that goes into the algorithm, but it can literally reduce your privileges in society. As you mentioned, you know, like boarding a train or various other, what some would say are rights, but you know, they say they're privileges that can be revoked um, if you do things that run afoul of that system. So, I mean, in my mind, these are massive human rights abuses. And I think sometimes governments and also perhaps journalists are waiting still for that moment, that a crackdown moment where they say, aha, now we see the repression. Now we're sure it's happening. Now, governments are 10 steps ahead. They're doing the repression. It's highly effective. It's often preemptive. It's often hidden. But it, the net result is devastating. And so I think journalists do have a job to do much more to sensitize people to this autocratic game, to this game that they're playing, and to, if you can't get a picture, raise raise consciousness of the human stakes of this these new forms of repression, many of which are digitally enabled, because they have a profound human toll. Um, but that that can't be known by the broader public unless those stories come out. Just because somebody isn't beaten or there aren't visible signs of torture doesn't mean that fairly devastating forms of repression aren't happening behind the scenes. Right. No, it's 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 becoming riskier and riskier. I think for movement leaders and for and for journalists covering it, especially in super autocratic countries like Russia. If we're asking journalists to dive deeper, what kinds of things should they look for? Who should they talk to? I mean, the first thing, if I was covering, let's say there was a protest called and I'm supposed to cover it. I want to determine a few things really quickly. Okay. Is this just a tactic, a protest tactic that's not connected to a broader movement? Or is this a tactic that's being done by a movement? That's a really critical distinction. And it's not immediately clear from the visual necessarily. Right. Right. So, so. And, and, and I'll, I'll say why that's important in, in, in a moment, but a protest that happens is a one-day story if it's not connected to a movement, usually. Because, because if it's just people voicing grievance, generally, about something they're against or advocating for something they're for, but they're not organized in any more significant way, they're probably not going to be back. They're probably not going to be able to do a lot of tactical diversity over time, sort of shifting and innovating from to strikes and boycotts. It's, it's something that they do to make a statement and then leave. 
On the other hand, if it's a movement, movements involve not just mobilization, they also involve organization. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, that organization is really critical. You can't always see it immediately. But organization is, is sort of that hidden ingredient that makes nonviolent tactics effective. It converts tactics into movements. What are some elements of organization? Uh, having clear goals that are widely shared having sequences of tactics that build towards those goals specifically, Uh, having sometimes coalitions that are clearly defined, doing training and having some kind of code of conduct for movement members that implies some kind of discipline. Um, Those are are signifiers that you're looking at more than a one-day story, that you're probably looking at the beginning of what we call a campaign or a movement that will persist over time. And we know, for example, that if there's repression done against a movement, it's much more likely to backfire than if there's repression done against a protest that's not connected to a movement. Exactly. That's a very important distinction. Right. This goes to another one of, I guess, my pet peeves with journalists is sometimes they refer to nonviolent or civil resistance movements as, quote, protest movements. And I just want to be really clear. Protest is a tactic. Civil resistance is a broad range encompassing hundreds of nonviolent tactics. If, if, if all the movement is doing is engaging in various cycles of protest, it's probably not going to win. The effective ones are the ones that engage in a range of nonviolent tactics. Again, not all of them are easy to see. How do you photograph a consumer boycott? It's a little tougher than, than photographing you know, a, a, a public protest. But the impact of sort of economic pressure or a work slowdown um, or, you know, like or a boycott can actually be even more significant than the protest. So if you determine that you're seeing a movement or a campaign as a journalist, start to look at what are the other tactics they're doing? What are the other support actions, trainings, meetings that they're doing that are that are all sort of building in, building their power over time? You know, one of one of excellent little one-page document that I came across on your website is the eight signs to identify nonviolent conflict. And you just spoke to a lot of them. You know, you talked about geographical dispersion, tactical variety, sequencing. I think one important thing on that list is vision for change. Uh, Do they have a vision for change? What is it? I think that's the kind of thing that journalists could explore more uh more vigorously absolutely and then the other question is if you're a journalist and a public action who do you talk to for your quotes to sort of figure out what that vision of change is so stuff that's deadline driven or that doesn't want to look very deep will find some folks not necessarily who may have just shown up or are just bystanders and you know sort of ask them what they think it's fine to get their views but it's really important to get the views of the people who are deeply committed, who called the action, or let, or if there are leaders of the movement, to talk to the leaders, figure out who they are. You know, I mean, some forms of activism don't have clear leaders. We've seen lots of times where, particularly, social media has created mobilization without organization, where there's just lots of people coming, often based on an outrage, to you know, a space to express grievance, but. It's also important to say, are there leaders? Are there organizers, right? Who are the activists doing the activism? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Is there evidence of planning here? Um, Find those people if you can. And if they're willing to talk to you, give them a chance 
to define why they did what they did rather than, for example, I think one of the worst practices is finding one of the most sort of sort of outrageous actors or person who's most flamboyant there or whatever, who's trying to get attention and then saying, why are you here? Okay, that's the quote we're going to run with. If that person's a leader, fine. But if they're just someone who's trying to get attention, you're really not honoring or doing service to the public by saying what the movement's about by over-relying on one person. Exactly. Heidi, you worked on a guide for journalists called Chronicling Civil Resistance. You put it out in 2021. And you presented some interesting examples of news coverage. One was the occupation of Tahrir Square and other anti-regime protests in Egypt in 2011. Um, here's a quote from the document. Journalists were generally good about reporting the backstory of the long-term abuses, constraints and corruption and, and injustice behind the, the uprising. But few seem to know about the organizers' commitment to preparation for nonviolent conflict. And that's, that's uh, an e- I, I would say, an easy thing to miss and, uh, and unfortunate that they do. Yes, for sure. And, you know, what <laughs> what happens often is that there are previous smaller campaigns where activists start to gain confidence, build their skills, start to build networks that lead to larger campaigns. So when you see something like the, you know, the pro-democracy actions and movement in Egypt in 2011, it's important to look for antecedents too in that society. For example, uh, the April 6th movement, which I, as I recall is in 2008, which was, you know, where students in major Egyptian cities like Cairo and Alexandria showed solidarity with labor strikers and and Suez um, who are trying, and they were trying to build solidarity. You're, you've got a labor issue. You live over there. You're of a certain economic class. We're in cities. We're of a different demographic, but we're going to show solidarity. And even before that, there was a campaign in Egypt called the Enough Campaign and, and campaigns against corruption. So some of these, you know, what are seen as smaller campaigns at the time sometimes build to larger things. I think we saw a similar sort of dynamic when you look at the Occupy Wall Street actions, um, you know, Occupy Wall Street had, <laughs> depends on how you define its goals, right. uh, you know, it had, it had its share of problems in goal formulation um, and strategizing and decision making. But there were activists that got experience, got to know each other and learned that later went on and to do all kinds of things. And I think you see, for example, if you look at the Sunrise Movement, you see activists uh, and certainly learnings from activists that were from Occupy that later launched into the Sunrise Movement that has made quite an impact. Hardy, why do you think the news media often misses out on the sense of agency among activists behind these movements? Why are the movement's leaders' motivations and strategies often poorly understood? In movements against authoritarianism in particular, um, there's often a proximate cause and then an underlying and deeper grievance, right? So the proximate cause could be like, you know, spikes in food or fuel or essential goods or electricity. And so then frequently people say, well, this is an economic grievance. You'll see lots of stuff about, in, you know, and stories about breaking protests, particularly in autocratic regimes where they talk about, you know, uh, you know economic-based grievances. And 
that that can be a significant trigger, and I don't want to underestimate that. On the other <laughs> on the other hand, it sort of misses a big chunk of what people's discontent might also be about, which is like deeply unaccountable government, longstanding misrule, human rights abuse, and the fact that they feel that institutions have failed them and are going to continue to fail them. They wouldn't be going out and engaging in civil resistance about economic grievances if they felt they had institutional remedies. So immediately, yes, the stated grievance might be economic, but an underlying grievance is that people don't think their institutions work for them, right? And then corruption is tied up in that too. You know, another thing is that people will sometimes moderate their demands that mitigate the repression they might experience. So for example, the the um, movement for independent labor unions in Poland, Solidarity in the 1980s, mm-hmm. talked about free the, how they wanted independent trade unions. They also wanted democracy. <laughs> by, by the way, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't go and demand democracy immediately. And so... So I think it's important to look, read, <clears throat> read a little deeper and beyond just what the immediate trigger is. And then about the issue of sort of why isn't the agency of people recognized? I mean, broadly speaking, and our society is saturated with the view that sort of the, the most powerful forces are violence and money and control of the information environment. And that's present in the way in which history is taught, the way in which institutions are structured, the way in which news and entertainment media, you know, continue to reiterate that. No one even has to tell you that directly. It's implicit in the way so much is told and comes across. And I think, you know, so it's not surprising that there's similarly a bias that, okay, sure, nonviolent movements occasionally win, but only when they have a benign adversary or they can't possibly stand against violent repression. It's not actually true. We have extensive research that tells us that that's not actually true. And we actually see it all the time. For example, you know, we've seen autocrats, in, in, including quite brutal ones, that have lost to mass nonviolent pressure because people have ways of exercising power too. What they do is they withdraw their consent in strategic and targeted ways that exerts economic, political, and social pressure on the regime, and the regime starts to crack. Because the regime's not just about a dictator and the dictator's inner circle. There's major economic and political and other institutions that start to split under pressure. They don't all obey orders equally all the time. They're not all equally loyal. And this this is how movements are able to, when they can figure out those cracks and build build a solid strategy, start to fracture a regime's power and ultimately prevail. Um, But this is not something that I think most political scientists talk about. It's not something, it's not an orientation necessarily that a lot of journalists are bringing to their work. Uh, But this is in fact a real phenomenon that I think should, you know, bears mention um, in these stories. These, These, when you cover a movement to note that in fact, Movements have been more effective, based on the research of Harvard professor Erica Chenoweth and scholar Maria Steffen, been more effective than violent insurgency, by a margin of about two to one over the last century. Mm -hmm. Right. That's something that people do not really get. Another point that the guide makes is the importance of picking out provocateurs, individuals who appear to be participating in a protest, but are actually trying to sabotage the effort. Can you tell us a story of the Umbrella Man from the 2020 protests over the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis? Well, I mean, I, I, what I know of it off the top of my head, since, I ha- since it's a few years old, was 
that yes, there was, um, as I recall, a man who showed up early on in the protests uh, against the killing of George George Floyd, um, and he was smashing windows. He was clad in black, and he was carrying an umbrella, so he got labeled umbrella man, um, and he was trying to incite looting and rioting, and some say that he was quite successful in doing so. And later uh, police alleged that he was in fact not a movement member, uh, but a movement adversary. Uh, They alleged he was a white supremacist who had come there to try to provoke the kind of headline grabbing uh, behavior around riots uh, that he thought would damage the movement. And it's, it's, it's happened. It's part of the playbook. And sometimes, uh, police officers have, you know, or police departments have had provocateurs show up. And sometimes it's actually just social groups that are opposed to the movement. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's really, this is one reason why it's very important for movements to define themselves as nonviolent, to have a code of conduct around that. So that when that kind of behavior happens, by definition, it disqualifies the person from being part of that movement. And it's the thing you can also say to journalists when violence happens, look, we who call this action, we who organized it have nothing to do with that person. That person may be totally opposed to us, or they may be just be free riding off of all of our effort, um, or we don't even know their motivation. But the story today is about the thousands of us who have clear goals um, and a clear strategy to achieve them rather than an opportunist who showed up and did some actions that we don't agree with. Right. A very important distinction, and that, that's critical. When we spoke earlier, you mentioned that in international reporting, journalists often repeat terms for protest movements that are actually propagated by authoritarians. Uh, and an, the example you gave was the color revolutions. Can you elaborate on that? So autocrats are deeply threatened by popular nonviolent movements. They know how vulnerable they are to these movements. And so what they've tried to do is they've come up with a terminology and a set of associations and innuendo to claim that these movements aren't in fact grassroots, that these movements aren't indigenous to their society, uh, or that these movements are somehow something more nefarious. And so they've, they've largely settled on the term color revolution. And the idea, this comes from like the way in which movements that ended the Milosevic regime in Serbia in 2000 and uh, Shevardnadze's government in Georgia in 2003 and the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2004, these started to get labeled as colored revolutions. And the connotation is, is that these revolutions are foreign-backed regime change operations. Um, that's, that's the conversation that authoritarians want to shift this to. That's what they want to do with that term. So they don't have credibility. We should not accept their framing. When movements win against autocrats and start to achieve democracy, I call those democratic breakthroughs, not color revolutions. Right. No, they are. And, um, you know, looking at the other side of the equation, what can the movement leaders do to help journalists get ahead of the story? I mean, obviously, there's certain strategic challenges. I mean, like if you're planning a walkout or a general strike, you might not want a word to get out ahead of time. Right. Um, I think a lot is context dependent, obviously, right? Because there's different media environments. There's a different mix of, you know, state media, public service media, commercial media, independent media. So, and there's 
different security requirements around how open one is with information. Um, but in general, you know, activists and organizers need to understand that in order to get your story covered, <laughs> unless you have an independent media outlet, which, which, you know, or an alternative, you know, movement media structure, which, uh, in many cases is a good idea. Um, but if you're relying on, you know, an outlet that is independent of your movement, then you got to sell it to the outlet before the outlet can, is going to propagate to the public. Your first audience is not just the public you want to reach. It is the journalists and the media outlets that you have to be able to understand what their incentives are, what their constraints are, what they need when they need it. Um, I wish it didn't work this way, but I, I'm speaking about the way I think it does work. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, right. so it's not, I mean, if you want to, if your media strategy is based on the way you wish the media operated, you know, go for it. But like when you understand, when you're doing your analysis of how the media in fact does operate and what journalists do need, you know, generally they need, you know, they, they, they want something that is new or unusual. I mean, news implies unusual or new, um, urgent, um, entertaining, or that shows conflict. Um, specifics are helpful. Naming specific perpetrators, specific demands, personalizing. They're they're going to cover something if they feel that this thing is significant. So you have to show or communicate that what you're doing is significant. It's powerful. It's a form of power. It can shape things, and it's not just a today story. You have other things planned subsequently. There's going to be follow up, and then. Similarly, like, you know, being able to say in simple, clear terms what it is you want. What are the most important facts? What does everyone need to know? What are your demands? Why are you doing this? What's next? All these aspects matter. Those are important questions. Right. And the good news is that if, if activists aren't doing this, they can they can get better at it. They can study it and get better at it and build their skills. And just as an aside, one of the reasons why ICNC exists is because activists don't have enough infrastructures for training and skill building of exactly this kind. We can't just expect activists to just know this stuff. It's important that it be taught or that it be that it be developed. And so, so this is, I think, an area where lots of organizations and others can get involved. And that's one thing that I think ICNC does beautifully, really powerfully. You've, you've seen that there's been improvement in the way the press has covered nonviolent protest movements. Can you talk about the impact that's had? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I want to be clear. There is no study finding that. That's my opinion. As someone who, you know, reads lots and lots and lots and lots of stories wherever I can find them about movements. Um, I think there have been some watershed events that have caused coverage to improve. I think in general, the Arab uprisings of 2010 and 2011, 2012, um, really changed people's understanding about how much movements matter. You know, no one would have thought, for example, that, uh, you know, President Ben Ali of Tunisia, who had been president for over 20 years, or President Hosni Mubarak of, you know, Egypt, would lose power through nonviolent movements, right? If you ask people six months before those movements, are those leaders going to lose power to a mass nonviolent uprising? No one would have said yes. <laughs> right. Similarly, you no one would have guessed, you know, no one predicted that Omar al-Bashir, one of the most brutal autocrats of the 20th and 21st centuries in Sudan, would lose power in 2019 to a predominantly nonviolent movement led by women and trade unions, right? But he did. 
And so um, there are watershed moments where that I think have been sort of public education and teaching moments um, where members of the media have, I think, increasingly realized, you know, that movements matter. Movements matter a lot, you know, and there's been also sort of a growth in academic research that has started to uh, be cited in media studies. And, uh, you know, the most notable of which is the work done by Erica Chenoweth. Uh, or the body of work done by Erica Chenoweth, much of which is quantitative, which gives statistics and probabilities, which I think lend themselves well to reporting and news stories. Mm-hmm. So that is all good. As to it, the effect it's had on movements, I, I couldn't begin to quantify it. Um, I think what we have to see is that movements are in a dynamic interaction with their opponents. And so autocrats have gotten better at hiding repression that really matters. So now the edge for journalists might be, you know, not just about doing deeper reporting on movements, but also developing a deepening understanding of the ways in which autocrats are trying to manipulate press coverage, not just through the overt things like keeping journalists out, but actually the ways in which they repress their own society and starting to cast more attention on those. If you want to go deeper, check out ICNC's Guide for Journalists Chronicling Civil Resistance. You can download it for free, and there's a link in the show notes. You'll also find a link there to Hardy Merriman's latest report, Fostering a Fourth Democratic Wave, a playbook for countering the authoritarian threat. Learn more about Hardy's work at hardymerriman.com. Making Peace Visible is produced by Andrew Moraskin, with help from Faith McClure, Peter Agus is the creative director of the War Stories, Peace Stories project, and I'm Jamil Simon. If you enjoyed this episode and learned something, please share it with a friend or colleague. Word of mouth is the best way we can grow the show. Next time on Making Peace Visible, we speak with NPR reporter Daniel Estrin about covering Israel and Palestine from a human perspective. Make sure to hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app so you don't miss it. Thanks so much for listening, and talk soon.